podcast audio and ask you this. Anybody have any questions or anything you would like to talk about before I open us up with prayer? Yes. Palm Sunday, this past Palm Sunday was the most amazing service of my Christian life. Palm Sunday was the most amazing service of your Christian life. It was a wonderful service. Have you been at this church on Easter? Yes. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, Easter's really good too. <laughs> so uh, that was great. But it is kind of hard for me. It's hard to top the little kids with the palms. I just love that, and I love the wee ones, the real tiny little ones, and I, uh, I love the older boys who are thinking of themselves. I'm not doing this again, <laughs> right, as they're going through. Yeah, I love it all. I love it all. So that's great. I'm glad it was very meaningful for you. Yes. This is a statement, not a question, but, you know, I was at the Baptist Church of Christ growing up. Yes. They didn't do any of this Holy Week stuff. Of course, Palm Sunday was a Sunday, and then Easter, obviously, but no, I didn't know about any of this stuff in between. You know, during the time, it, it's, it's been that way for a very long time, because during the Reformation, there were a lot of approaches taken by Protestants, protesters, who were leaving the authority of the Pope. And some of them stayed very Catholic-like. Those are really Lutherans, they're very much that way. Um, the Baptists were kind of got rid of everything, right? And um, a lot of the traditions and the liturgy, they just they just got rid of it all. And I, I think they went overboard. I think holy, because the alternative to Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday is to go from the triumph of Palm Sunday to the triumph of Easter without experiencing the pain and suffering and the faithfulness of Christ in the days leading up to his crucifixion. You just kind of blow past all that stuff. And I think that's a big mistake. Big mistake. And, and so I'm, I'm, I'm sort of Methodist on purpose. If I were Methodist, I'd probably uh, become a Anglican, okay, in, in what I would do, because that's, I, I think it's important. We, you know, in a Methodist church, we don't go overboard on liturgy and those kind of things, but people, I think people respond to it, even if they can't articulate why. I think it. I think it reaches them someplace deep. So anyway, okay. Yes. Yes, North Texas won the bas won the NIT tournament. Yes, they did. Anything else? No, I will. Okay, so Patty's telling me about some little article in the Babylon Bee about a little boy who's so excited about Palm Sunday. So, so excited because he gets to whack his sister. Oh, <laughs> right. It's a it's a church sanctioned occasion to whack his sister with the palm. True, you can see it. Okay, all right. Well, let's do this. Anything else y'all would like to talk about? <laughs> Okay, let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be here today. It is Tuesday of Holy Week. This is the day in Holy Week when Jesus went from one confrontation to another and, and the tensions ratcheting higher and higher and higher. And you begin to really see where it is headed. And we just ask that you open our hearts and minds to you as we um, return to the story of Saul and Samuel and ponder the meaning of obedience. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I would like to, we are, we are right at the beginning of chapter 15. So that's where we are, right at the beginning of chapter 15. So I need to give you some background before we plunge in. All right? So first of all, this chapter involves the Amalekites. Okay? The Amalekites are a people who lived, well, let's say Egypt is here, right? Sinai Peninsula is here off the bottom of the screen. They are a people who had a very 
the Israelites had a very difficult pass with the Amalekites. When the Israelites were escaping Egypt, and God was leading them to Mount Sinai, and then from Mount Sinai up to the Promised Land, the Amalekites attacked them, um, the Israelites, because they did exactly what God told them to do. They were victorious, but the Amalekites tended to fall on the rear of the um, Israelite people where the weaker people were and lots of women and children and, and the Amalekites became sort of um, in the minds of the Israelites terrorists, criminals, not quite like the other peoples around them who might be their enemies but, but the Amalekites were of a special sort and this is demonstrated by the fact in Scripture when the, the Amalekite king that you're going to meet here, his name is Zagag, uh, or it, <coughs> his last descendant that we know of was a man named Haman. Haman was a, a Jew who lived in Persia after the Babylonian captivity in the Jewish community and Haman was determined to, um, he wasn't a Jew, he was determined to, to um, commit genocide against the Jews, basically, in Persia. And that story is told in the book of Esther. And in the festival of Purim, every year, um, Jews today still enact that story, and Haman is the bad guy, right? So he is the last descendant of this king of Gag. I say all of that because we're going to come to something in here that is very difficult. In the ancient world, with the Israelites and with other peoples, there was a practice of wars that were holy wars. The Israelite term for it was harem, H-E-R-E-M or H-A-R-A-M, depending on, on how you might do it. Um, um, it was also called the ban, and in this holy war, the enemy was to be vanquished, and then the enemy was to be totally destroyed. Devoted to God was the phrase sometimes, but devoting the vanquished enemy to God meant destroying the enemy entirely, killing everybody, killing all the livestock, reducing the cities or towns to, to nothing. And you run into this the most often in the book of Joshua, which is why Joshua, as a book in the Bible, is the one that falls hardest on us because we are... Jesus people, right? Here in 1 Samuel 15, we're going to encounter this again. And you're going to be surprised. The, the text does not wrestle with the morality of this or not. You and I do, and we should indeed. Okay, I get that. We do. Um, but, but, but not here. It... it, it, it the emphasis is on Saul and what Saul does. Okay, so um, that's the ban is is you know for us it's just you run into it in Scripture and you just sort of I leave every story and this is most of them are in Joshua and then you have this one um, just sort of shaking your head and wondering you know what to make of it and. and wondering about the morality questions in it. But Saul doesn't, Samuel doesn't, the text doesn't. Um, um, the text is oriented to making us ask questions about our own, what does it mean to be, to be obedient to God in our lives? What do we do, what, how do we discern what God would have us do and have us not do, okay? So those are the two things, the Amalekites, they are, they are, they are, a modern equivalent would be like, in the minds of the Israelites, a modern equivalent would be like the Nazis. Okay, just so, just to, um, this is a point John Golden Gay, a really outstanding Old Testament scholar makes. He says, you just need to understand the way they were seen by the Israelites at this time. So, in fact, Okay, I'll come back to that later. I just copied a little bit of what Golden Gay had to say about this. So, 
Let's look at chapter 15, verse 1. I guess I should ask if there's questions before I just plunge in. Probably not yet, but if there are, I'll be glad to help you as best I can. Okay, so Samuel said to Saul, I am the one Yahweh sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. True. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what Yahweh Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them. See the choice of words? When they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. That is the ban. That is harem. That is holy war in the ancient Near East. That is a practice that we, of course, find morally <laughs> objectionable to pick a soft word, right? I will say, as I've thought about this over the years, there is one thing that the ban does. What the ban does is it takes all profit out of war, right? You go to war against your neighbor, if you can't keep anything that you won in that war, would you make, would you make such a war? Would Putin have invaded Ukraine if he knew at the end of it he had to give it all back? What? <laughs> Probably. Oh, I don't. Oh, I don't. I don't. See, I don't think so. I think those calculations are made. I, I think that you pull the profit, um, monetary profit, territory profit, whatever it might be, out of the war equation, you would have many, many fewer wars. That is the only morally pleasing aspect of the ban that I have ever thought of myself and other people have thought of it so it's not original with me. What's original after all really, right? So that's it. So, so Samuel comes to Saul and Samuel tells Saul, okay, you're going to go and you're going to make war on the Amalekites, you're going to make war on these terrorists, you're going to make war on these hated enemies the despised enemies, these, these crooked, awful people, um, and you are, to, you are to devote all of it to God. And that means, under the ban, to destroy everything. All the animals, all the people, everything. No profit left for Saul in that war, just destruction. So, thoughts or questions? Well, I, you know, um, okay, so I'm being asked why didn't God want them to keep it. I don't, I don't have many answers to the W-H-Y questions when it comes to this kind of story, okay? Um, clearly, there were ancient wars in which people did keep plunder, spoils. Getting spoils was sort of a reward for the troops when the troops overcame us. You know, here, let me explain one thing, way it worked in the ancient world. Well, so let's say you were a city and you had a wall as all cities did and you were besieged. The enemy surrounds your city. If you surrendered to the enemy when it was inevitable that you were going to lose, if you surrendered and you didn't make them fight their way into the city, they could not ransack the city. They could not take the plunder. But if you made them lay siege to the city, breach the walls, and the rest of it, then it was fair game. And for the soldiers, that was, that plunder and stuff was a significant part of their monetary reward, I guess, for being, being one of the warriors. But the holy wars were, are different. That's what this is. This is, is this harem idea is different than that. This is 
you destroy everything, and in doing that, you're devoting it to God. You're not keeping it for yourself. Okay? And that's what Saul is being asked to do, instructed to do, commanded to do, when Samuel comes to see him. Yes? Uh-huh. And they, they use the word punish. Most of the time, God is administering justice. Uh, can you speak on, on that? Okay, so let me see. You have the NIV. I have the I NIV. Um, I will punish the Amalekites. So, God, that is the administration of God's justice against the Amal Amalekites. You know, God is just. God administers justice. God is merciful. God administers mercy. And again, Larry, you kind of want me to tell you, well, why is God doing what God is doing here, aren't you? This seems like a special case, I guess. I don't know. Oh, I don't know. We could go to Joshua and find a lot, a lot more. So I, I think that... Um, I've heard people offer various things. Well, okay, one thing I've heard offered is, well, you know, what's happening is that God is ensuring the, um, the survival of the Israelites, so he's going to make an example of the Amalekites to Israel's neighbors so that they, they understand that the Israelites are under God's protection. But that's not in the text. The text simply says... I'm going to punish them. I'm going to punish them for being the kind of people they are because the people they are is the kind of people that waylaid the Israelites when they were merely trying to make their way to the promised land. And in other writings, you, the Amalekites are always the bad guys, like Haman in the book of Esther. In the book of Esther, Haman has no redeeming qualities. He isn't a nice, he isn't a nice guy to go hang out and have a beer with or something like that. He, he just plots, he just plots, plots, plots the destruction of the Jews. That's what he does. And it's a great story. You should read Esther. I mean, it's really just, just what happens to it. Yes? There's one way to look at it that God, God Almighty is just seeking to destroy these seeds that would otherwise just grow into more evil weeds if the seeds are gone. Okay. So here's another explanation that on offer is, well, God is trying to get rid of the, these evil seeds before they, they grow further, right? What, what, what does it say in Genesis chapter 6? It's gotten so bad where the, the writer says, ah, it was evil, evil, evil everywhere. From morning till night, all anybody thought about was evil. So the suggestion is, well, perhaps, you know, this is about stamping that out quickly. Maybe. All the text says, I'm going to punish the Amalekites, right? Yes. Ah, well, how much time has elapsed? So by, I think, most reckonings, We've gone through the Exodus, we've gone through the, we're to the end of the book of Judges, maybe 200 years. There's that whole time frame involved, which makes it more complicated, doesn't it? Because it's not like it happened yesterday. I... I'm just telling you when it happened, you can look at the text, it's, you know, <laughs> you're gonna come to see that, that the story isn't focused on this piece of it. The story's not focused on this piece. Um, but yeah, I hear you. Th this is one of those places when, when those who want to scoff, you know, at Christians and Jews and the God we worship and all that kind of stuff, this is one of the kind of places they go to. Not, not putting it in any context, this is the age of Conan the Barbarian. This is the ancient world a thousand years before Jesus. 350 years before Rome was even founded. 
five centuries, more than five centuries before um, uh, the golden age of Greece, four centuries before the arrival of the Buddha in the East. It's a long time ago. And the ways of, those, of that world are not our way. And so you have, uh, the only way, I mean, the only way, we, we get a progressive understanding of who God is in Scripture, right? It starts way back in the ancient world that doesn't have nearly the same connection to us that even the world does in Jesus' day, right? Um, and then you bring it forward to Jesus, and there you finally have the full revelation of who God is. So, but hey, struggle with it. We, if, if you didn't struggle with this, here's my suggestion. If you don't struggle with this, you should, right? Yeah, all I, you should, we should. Yes, well, I have one over here. Okay. Yeah. What? Wesley would have really struggled, right? What, what, what do you make? I, 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 we had a fellow here at the church named Roy Howe, and you know, um, he had been a professor down at Perkins for many years. His solution was that God never told Samuel something like this, right? Well, I can't go that far because it's like, where, where, where does that lead me? That leads to making me the decider of, well, which parts of this is God speaking or not. Um, anyway, there we go. I knew today would be fun. <laughs> you want to talk about the Gospel of Mark? Okay. <laughs> so, in my study notes, they made uh, something interesting about the Amalekites are a nomadic people, descendants of Esau. See, they, okay. So, Mona brought up a really good point that I should have mentioned, that they are actually distant relatives of the Israelites. So when they turn on the Israelites, these ancient relatives of theirs, doesn't that even make it worse? Of course it does. They're like, it's like being waylaid by your cousin. That is what it is. So all I'm telling you is, well, okay, thank you, Mono, that was helpful. Yeah, wow. That's what Samuel says to Saul. So let's see what Saul does. Well, so Saul summoned the men and mustered them, right? Formed them into a fighting force at Telaim, right down here. That's the little dot there. He musters the forces. They come down, they meet, they get their act together all at Telaim. <coughs> 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek. Remember, these are the Amalekites. It's off the map down to the southwest and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, um, another people who live down there but are not going to get caught up in this, go away, leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites <laughs> moved away from the Amalekites. They hauled it. Push, <laughs> right, right. Is it that is you know? So the is the focus on just one. The focus is on the Amalekites, and Saul knows what he is supposed to do. All right. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. Okay, so he chases them all the way through through the Sinai wilderness all the way to the border of Egypt. Let me go to, see, here and then. He chases them, their army's running, he's chasing them. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. So it's a big victory, you know. The people are, all the people are dying, dead. But Saul and the army spared Agag. They spare the king. 
and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good in the way of livestock, they kept, they spared them. I mean, that, that's like real money on the table, right? They spared them. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything else that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. So, what are we being told in the text, in the story, that Saul and his men were victorious, all the really good stuff that they could want to do something with, they kept. And the stuff they couldn't do anything with, they destroyed, including the people. It's... Okay? When the word of Yahweh came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and he cried out to Yahweh all that night. So how did Saul disobey God's word given to him by Samuel? Kept all the good stuff. He profited from the war. They took the plunder, kept the plunder, burned up the stuff they had no use for, um, killed all the people, brought the king back. You think that's an act of mercy? No, that's, that glorifies Saul. You, you, you bring the vanquished king back in chains, it glorifies Saul. When, when, when Rome would conquer an enemy, they would often put on a big parade back in Rome and they would parade, if he was still alive, the conquered king because it glorified Caesar. <clears throat> what? I'm saying shame, shame. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, speak up, Patty. I'm saying like in Game of Thrones, when yes. they do this to the queen, they march her out in front of everybody naked, and all the people are screaming at her, shame, shame, shame. Yes, they march the queen out in the Game of Thrones, they shouted, shame, shame. And when Caesar brought them in, it was about, the point was Caesar, though. It was about glorifying Caesar. Otherwise, they would have just killed the guy. It disglorify who who is glorified by 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 sparing the Am Amalekite king Saul. Saul Saul's glorified. That's how it worked. Well, verse. Anybody else want to make plunge in? I mean, I'll take it all at one time. Why not? Plunge in on plunder. Okay. Yes, Sharon. Isn't it a sad thought that they thought more of the animals than their brothers and sisters of humanity? So what Sharon is raising a really good point that they thought more of the animals than the people. You know, I will say this is the time when people when human when humanity was viewed very very cheaply. Human you know, how could they build the pyramids? <clears throat> because human labor, human life was, was just not worth anything. Why would the Romans send hundreds, thousands of people into the, into the arenas merely... How could they economically justify that? Because humans were viewed um, so as having little economic value. The vast number of humans, okay? Um, one of the big things in the ancient world is we live in a world in which it's all about the children. Will everybody agree? 
at least for the politicians, it's always about the children. <laughs> so, so that is not the ancient world. In the ancient world, children were not valued. They didn't have a voice, they were not valued. They were a mouth to feed that could not contribute to the day-to-day survival, thank you, of the family. So, so just in so many ways, the um, ancient world is, was really different than our own and their minds worked differently. And in this case, the plunder that Solon his men wanted is obviously, because that's what he kept, were the livestock and not even all the livestock, just the really good stuff, because they had to get it home, right? Yeah, it's just, um, yeah. Okay, anything else? Well, early in the morning, verse 12, early in the morning Samuel got up and he went to meet Saul, but he was told, well, Saul has gone to Carmel. That is, a there's a Carmel in the south, there's a Carmel in the north. Let me go back to my previous map because it's clearer there. Okay, here it is. It's just right here. You can only see a little bit of it. He got up in the morning, went back right there to Carmel. To what? Now, nah, Carmel's in California. <laughs> in, 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 yeah, I had to get used to that. In Israel, the, the big one is Mount Carmel. That's where Elijah takes on the Super Bowl. They do say at Carmel, though. It's weird, isn't it? Those Israel people. Okay, so early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told, well, you know, Saul is skirted out of town. He's gone up to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor. So if you're wondering where, if you're wondering what this story is going, what it's about, now it's becoming clear. He builds a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal, which is further north. When Samuel reached him, <laughs> finally reached him, I'm sure, and Saul said, Yahweh bless you. Wait, when Samuel reached him, Saul said, Yahweh bless you, I have carried out Yahweh's instructions. Is that a true statement? No. no. Might Saul have convinced himself that he did so? <coughs> yeah. He's right, that we do that. Right, we rationalize everything. We're and we're talking about that. Nobody walks around saying, I'm an evil person, and I'm going to do X, Y, Z. They rationalize everything, except for one person, Patty. And what's his name? You told me what is No, Gru oh. from Despicable Me. If you have grandkids, you know about Despicable Me. See, yes, Gru just, Gru just, just wallows in his evil, evil plans. Okay. <laughs> or, or Dr. Evil, that's another good example from, what's the movie? Austin Powers. There we go. You got to watch movies if you're going to keep up with Patty and me. I'm just telling you. So Saul says, hey, man, I did it. I did it. I did what God wanted. I did it. Oh, man, it's a good day. And Samuel said, what then is this bleating of sheep I hear in my ears? <laughs> what is this lowing of cattle that I hear? <laughs> Your noisy livestock has given you away. He can hear it with his own ears. I love that. It isn't that he says, it isn't that he says, oh, I see the sheep or I see the cattle. Ah, I hear the bleeding of sheep and the lowing of cattle. What is that? You didn't leave here with that. You brought it back. And Saul answered, well, the soldiers... The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. Those soldiers, they spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to Yahweh your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Do you think that they have brought the very best livestock back to sacrifice? No. I mean, <laughs> I'm thinking they would, they would try to make the argument, but no. I don't buy it. Enough. Neither does Samuel. Enough. Besides, when God, okay, 
when 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 God gives instructions, they are to be followed because God is God. It doesn't have to get more more complicated than that. Um, Jesus says some difficult things. The New Testament calls us to do some difficult things. Think of the rich, young, important ruler dude who comes to see Jesus and says, I'm, I'm, I'm ready. I'm, I'm like all in, man. I'm ready. Let's go. And Jesus says, okay, first go and sell everything you have. And then come on back and we'll go. And the rich young ruler walks away sadly because he knew he wasn't going to do it. That was, that, that was too much. It was a step too far. So there is always this challenge for us in will we strive to hear how God wants us to live and will we then do so? It's like in the little, I, years ago I got a four-step method of biblical reading, interpretation from Richard Hayes at Duke. And he said, first thing you gotta do is really read what's on the page and bring all of your skills and knowledge and everything that you can find to understanding what's on the page in the context, on the page. Then he said, well, then whatever conclusions you come to about what you've read, then you've got to subject those to the whole expanse of Scripture, to the whole library. That makes sense, right? Then, then and only then, can you bring it forward and ask yourself, well, what does this mean for today? Plano in 2023, my life, my family. And then comes the really hard part, part the step four actually living it, actually doing it. Because we have a tendency to rationalize scripture into teaching us to do the things we already want to do. That's what I think Jesus was fighting against. When he says, ah, well, you know, it's easy to love your brother. It's easy to love your family. It's easy to love all those people you really, really like. But you've got to love your enemies. And then people start walking away. So. Like this? Yes. How, how what? How do you love your enemies? Huggy, huggy, or just... Okay, so Kathy's asking me, how do you love your enemies? Huggy, huggy? Well, that wouldn't be good, I guess, but it, the, the answer really lies in what, what is love. Is love huggy, huggy, a bumper sticker, sentiment, a violin, roses? No. Love is about what you do. How do you treat your enemy? Deuteron um, Deuteronomy, Exodus. If you find your enemy's oxen tied to a tree... Your enemy's oxen tied to a tree, what do you do? You take the oxen to your enemy because you would take the oxen to your friend, to your brother. If you pick up a wallet on the ground and you open it up and it is the wallet belonging to your most, to the biggest enemy you have on the planet. You don't have any, Kathy, I know, but imagine you had one. Imagine you had one. You take the wallet to that person with the cash in it. Okay, right? Yeah. You treat, um, where, do you, where can you see this played out? You can see this played out, out in the treatment of prisoners of war. Right? Lots of places. The treatment of people in prisons. How, is, how do we treat people? Right? And, and so anyway, all right. So Saul has built a monument. They've got the cattle and the livestock and Samuel blurts out, enough. Tell me what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. That's kind of a smart answer. Right? Don't you think that? I mean, not, I don't mean smart. I mean smart ass answer. That's kind of smart ass answer is what I mean. <laughs> I 
yeah, 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 yeah. You tell me. You t I'm king. You tell me. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? Yahweh anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, Go, and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey Yahweh? Why did you pounce on the plunder? Oh, I love that line. Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of Yahweh? And that evil is the disobedience. That's the issue. And, you know, we saw earlier that Saul made a harsh, um, a, a, um, an oath that he should never have made, a rash oath that he should never have made. We saw earlier that um, Saul had been disobedient. Remember when he was supposed to wait for Samuel and he got tired of waiting, so he sets up an altar and does some sacrificial stuff himself because he just wasn't going to wait any longer. And now Saul has disobeyed God again. There's a pattern here with Saul. So here is Saul's response. But I did obey Yahweh. I went on the mission. Yahweh assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back, brought back Agag their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, now these are famous lines. These are lines you find um, in Micah. You find them in Isaiah. These are famous lines. They, they, they reveal so much about who God is. Does Yahweh delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as much as in obeying Yahweh? He doesn't, God doesn't want the sacrifices. I, I don't think, I don't think Saul's even being truthful, but set that aside. God told Saul what Saul was to do, and Saul, what? Simply thought he knew better. He just thought he knew better. He's king now. He thought he knew better. Does Yahweh delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? In the book of Micah, God does, chapter 6, God does not want rivers of oil and your fattest calves and your firstborn. What does, what does the Lord require of you? To do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. To obey, back to 1 Samuel, to obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. Right? This is Israelite poetry. The way poetry worked in, um, for the Israelites was the second line almost always repeats the first line, the idea of the first line, but expresses it differently. To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed God to heed God and to do what God says is better than the fat, the best part of the rams. Why would, why would the fat of an animal be highly valued in this world? What? It was oil. It was also where the biggest concentration of calories were. This, believe it or not, their world was a fight for calories. Survival meant calories. Right? That's not our world. I'm supposed to be avoiding calories. So we, we try to yank the fat out of everything. Fat-free this, fat-free that, fat-free this. But that's a complete reversal of how humanity lived. Which is why fat makes us, why we're drawn to it. Why it, why it smells so good and tastes, I'm serious. That's what I think, yeah. To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion. Oh, what a good word. Rebellion. What is the story of Adam and Eve in the garden? It is rebellion. 
They don't want, they don't do what God told them to do. God didn't even ask much of them. Just don't eat the fruit of this one tree. And they can't do it. They rebel against God because they want to know what God knows. They want to be like God. For rebellion is like the sin of divination. This is using rods or other ways to discover the oracles of the gods. Pagan practice. And arrogance like the evil of idolatry. All the little uh, pagan god in their world, it was characterized by the worship of, of um, figurines and statues and stuff. In our world, it's not that so much. It's more like the worship of credit cards. For, for rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of Yahweh, he has rejected you as king. That's a big line right there. God is rejecting Saul as king. Now, virtually every commentator that I read about this, they said, be careful. It, this is, it's not as if everything, everything is okay with God and Saul, and then he crosses some line, and then it's all, oh, well, you went too far, and now you're gone. It's more like Saul is showing himself simply to be someone who cannot lead Israel going forward. If you can't be obedient, I would extend it to if you're gonna if you're gonna make rash oaths that will could end up sweeping your own son into an oath about death, you're not suitable to be the earthly king of God's people. But that line right there, 1 Samuel 15, verse 23, he has re... Because, and look, because you have rejected the word of Yahweh, he has rejected you as king. It's not arbitrary. This is something that Saul brought upon himself. That is such an important point. We Certainly, I, grow, I grew up tending to come to a lot of passages of the Bible that would lead me to think God just sort of arbitrarily does this and that and God is waiting to smite people you know here and there and I didn't have anybody helping educate me differently this is like the verse from Ezekiel that I just love so much where Ezekiel says where God says to Ezekiel I'm going to turn their sins back upon their own heads What's going to happen to them is a consequence of their own sins. It's going to be the consequence of their own decisions, their own choices. Saul made a choice to be disobedient, to rebel against God. He may not see it that way, but if he doesn't see it that way, he's wrong. He just thought he knew better. Just thought he knew better. Um, So it's, so, it's so easy to think we know better. We live in a time when, what do, what do people tend to want to do with God? How can I put this? They tend to want to put God in the witness stand. And they'll interrogate God, and if they think God is the sort of God worthy of their worship, then fine, they'll be good for it. But if they can't figure this out, or they don't understand this, or they don't understand this, and they don't like, God, like, why did you send Saul to kill the Amalekites? And nope, God, you're not worthy of my attention, worship, devotion, and they go on. But that's very modern, the idea that God is the one in the witness stand. And as the Brits would put it, God in the dock. Okay, because the dock is where the charged person stands. And in, rather, we are the charged person, right? For as Paul writes, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So I saw a hand over here somewhere. Yes. As I read this, um, it's kind of critical of Saul. Um, Saul, in his reply to um, Samuel, he says, 
the, um, we saved some of this to sacrifice to Yahweh, your God in Gilgal. Your yeah, you know, yeah, so you're, you're noticing that in this conversation, Saul, we could hear it this way, that Saul says, well, to sacrifice to your God, but that's really more just the Hebrew way of speaking, because you run into it a lot in the Bible. Okay, so I wouldn't make too much out of that, because I wonder myself, so, well, why does it say like our God? Yeah. Sometimes they will, but... You know, commentators have cautioned about, no, no, that's, he's not really, because he knows that Yahweh is his God too. It's just, you know, yeah. Did he think, good question, did, did Saul think that he could appease God in that way, right? Appeasing God has a very long history, right? Um, the, amongst the pagans, there was a lot of appeasing going on. And they would, it's sort of the, in many ways, it's just the heart of sacrifice. Why did the Aztecs sacrifice so many humans that, that they had conquered? It was to appease the gods and try to stay in God's favor. So I, I think that there is, there is something there that is appealing and it might express something in Saul and I'm not sure how to express it in our day but I'm pretty sure it's something that people try to do I need to think about that more but that appeasement um, that's you know it's sometimes what people will want to do with Jesus on the cross as see Jesus's death as appeasing God um, Jesus's death averting God's wrath. And there is a word group, a propitiation, that some of you might have encountered when you were younger in translations that tends not to be used as much anymore, that is pretty directed towards seeing um, Jesus' death on the cross as an appeasement that averts um, this wrathful God. I, that's not how I see what happens on the cross, how it is that the cross puts us at one with God, but um, appeasing is a long has a long history so sure Saul grew up around pagan people remember he is remember in, in the land of Israel they have settled in that land but they have pagan neighbors still living in and amongst them they still have pagan neighbors living in and amongst them and at times the Philistines are pushing eastward and so it's all it's 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 more fluid, I think, than we tend to, to see it. Okay. So I think we're at verse 24. Is that true? Well, then Saul said to Samuel, this is Saul speaking to Samuel, I have sinned. This is confession. I violated Yahweh's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Now, which also might indicate he's not the one to be, the right one to be the king of Israel, right? Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship Yahweh. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of Yahweh, and Yahweh has rejected you as king of Israel. Now, who is this conversation between? Samuel and Saul. Anybody else? Anybody else involved in this? Remember when Samuel anointed Saul, and pretty much the two of them were the only ones that knew about it? The two of them were the only ones that know about this. Saul will be king for many years to come. Many years to come. More, many chapters to come. <laughs> many Tuesdays to come. Okay? As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, Yahweh has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today 
and has given it to one of your neighbors, personal neighbor, not a neighboring kingdom, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel, that's God, does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. Now that's a famous verse, and there's tension around that verse, because I could take you to stories in the scripture where God changes his mind. Okay? Um, Hezekiah is sick, 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 and um, God tells Isaiah to go visit King Hezekiah in the palace of Jerusalem and tell Hezekiah that he has really basically no time left, that he's going to die. And Isaiah walks into the room and he says, you know, in so many words, you're going to die. Isaiah turns starts to, and it starts to walk out of the palace and Hezekiah rolls over to the wall and he prays to God and says, oh, please, 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 I'm not ready. And then God comes to Isaiah, who has not made it out of the palace yet, and says to Isaiah, go back and tell Hezekiah he's got 15 more years. So, you know, it's, we want the Bible to be perfectly unambiguous. There are lots of times I think that, but I want the Bible to be perfectly unambiguous. But it is not. And we are not. Our relationship with God is not. How we live in God's presence is not. How we follow Jesus is not. And so, you, you, when you come to the Bible, you have to be you have to be willing to embrace the full context of the entire library of 66 writings to come to conclusions about the nature of God. And I, for one, um, well, I don't want to get into it today, so, so. <laughs> I, I am struck by the big significance of the Hezekiah story, let me put it that way because I think prayers matter. If God never changed his mind, if nothing ever changed because of your prayers, wouldn't those prayers be quite empty? I don't think that's really how it is, but I'll do some reading on this, this verse this, this week in a way I haven't before. <coughs> um, but the key is to be willing to see the complexities even in scripture and not just iron them all away and turn it into a kind of flat you know two-dimensional one-dimensional uh, it's it's all here well so Saul replied I have sinned but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel come back with me so that I may worship Yahweh your God so Samuel went back with Saul and Saul worshipped Yahweh. Then Samuel said, Bring me Agag, a king of the Amalekites. <coughs> Agag came to see him in chains, and he thought, Surely the bitterness of death is past. That's the enemy king. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to death before Yahweh at Gilgal. So the king brought back from the Amalekites is executed at Gilgal for the crimes that he and his people have committed. Verse 34, Then Samuel left for Ramah, and, but Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. Okay, so they're, they're all up there, all these red dots. They're all up on that, there's this, See, there's this spine that runs down the center of Israel. And that's where most of these places are, are, are on that spine. Not down in the Jordan River Valley to the east, nor the plains leading, sweeping down to the Mediterranean. The really choice land is the land between the Mediterranean and that ridge 
that, that spine, those hills and mountains. But who, 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 has, who has the coastal lands? The Israelites? No, the Philistines. The Philistines do. Okay. Verse 34. Then Samuel left for Ramah, and Saul went up to his home in Gibeah. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again. So, what's happened? So, Samuel has told Saul that he has been rejected by God as king. They each went their own way. Nobody knows this. Consequently, Saul returns as what? King. Got it. Got it. And the last line. That's uh, verse 35. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. And Yahweh regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Well, it said he didn't change his mind. Now it says he regrets things. You know, Karen, see, that's where it's not unambiguous, is it? It is... And we want to just say, well, could you, could you just boil this down to a couple of well-spaced pages in <laughs> Word, Microsoft Word for me, right? But it's not like that. And so consequently, even today in 2023, um, for example, Calvinists and Wesleyans will have good, long, hearty discussions each calling scripture to their side and yet not quite being able to reach common ground in part because they start in a very different place. And there you go. That's how it is. A Calvinist is going to sure look at 1 Samuel 15, 29. A Wesleyan is going to look at 1 Samuel 15, 35 and then move to the story of Hezekiah and a bunch of other places. So anyway, and Yahweh regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So what is to be done? That's what we'll discover next week. Because when we come together next week, we are going, Samuel is going to anoint the next king of Israel. But do not think that, this, that everybody knows what's going on. And that's like, you know, coronations and all that. No, that's not what's happening. Saul will be the king of Israel for a long time yet. So, any final thoughts or questions? Um, when we leave, we need to not dawdle because they would like to get in the room to change it out for um, Theodos' reception. Yes, sir? To summarize, who are we to question God's decisions? Who are we to question God's decisions? Right? We're not ones to question God's decisions. It's we who are in the dock, not, not God. Yes. Looking at the pecking order up here, Saul is king. Saul is king. What role does Samuel? Is Samuel a king king? Samuel is not a king at all. But he's a prophet. He's a prophet. And the last judge of Israel. So and he brings God's word, which is... Right? So if you're king... And you have a prophet like Samuel who's going to bring you God's word, you need to obey it and you need to pay attention. So I don't know what that means in, term, in terms of earthly hierarchy. It might not mean much. But in God's hierarchy, in God's calculus, God's word means everything. And Saul has lost his kingship, his rightful kingship, his kingship in God's eyes. Why? Because he has, he thought he knew better. He thought he knew better. That's it. And, and rebelled against God because he thought he knew better. Genesis chapter 3. Okay, so I'm going to, anything else? Yeah, Lauren sent me a little text just to remind people on this nice day. It might be a good day to do Yeah, Stations of the Cross. So Lauren, you know, the whole Station of the Cross thing is Lauren Gerlach's creation. So she just wanted me to remind you to be sure to do that. Today's a nice day, but it's going to be every day this week, okay, um, from dawn to dusk. And Lauren herself is 
myself will be here every day from 12 to 1 to help guide people through if they would like. Lauren will be here every day from 12 to 1 to guide people through. Okay, so anything else before our close up and next week when you come, we will meet David. We'll meet Yay. David. Yeah. <laughs> we'll meet David. Uh huh. You're going to be clapping for a good long time and then you're not going to be clapping anymore. Yeah, right. <laughs> we get further into David's story, those claps are going to disappear. So, all right. Well, pray with me. Gracious Lord, gosh, we come to stories like this with the Amalekites and Saul and your command around this destruction of lives. And we don't, we don't know what to make of it. All we do know is that Jesus, you sent your son for the sake of the whole world so that we might all be reconciled to you. Your son suffered the worst that humankind has to offer. Whether it's the ancient world, Jesus' time, today's world, help us this week in particular to come to grips with that to understand the price paid, as Paul puts it, for our salvation, for our being made right with you. And let us always remember that indeed you are the creator and we are the creature. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.